0: Text for this morning's sermon is first Peter chapter five verses one through six. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, first Peter five, one through six. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you.
1: Uh, Father, as we look into Your Holy Word, God, I pray that we would lean into it, remembering that it is It is a living word that gives life, uh, that it's profitable, that we may be complete. Father, we thank you for such practical instruction to a suffering church, such that Peter was writing to, so that even today, with all the struggles, uh, your word speaks to us. Uh, Father, I ask that uh, we would be humbled and that uh, this text would strengthen our love for one another and our faith in You. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in light of the topic that we've been on for several weeks, which is... The topic of suffering. Peter's writing to a suffering uh, church body. I thought it would be appropriate that I would uh, begin with introduction by talking about the Vikings. Right now, they're 0 3. Things aren't good as a Vikings fan. Uh, And I'm guessing tensions are high inside uh, Viking facilities. And this week I was listening uh, to the, the coach Mike Zimmer getting interviewed and one of the reporters was asking him a question and Mike Zimmer kind of got nasty with him and said, are you making a statement and you going to ask a question? You could tell he was feeling pressure that he was getting frustrated. And uh, this is the leader of the team in light of suffering three losses and having to not be able to practice this week because of a COVID scare and different things like that. But someone said, you know, one of his best friends is Bill Parcells an older man who has won super bowls and has been through much adversity and he talks to him a lot and in times like this he calls bill how do you how do you lead a team through adversity and through difficulty and in this text peter is writing to a a church that is suffering to churches that are suffering Big time. And just like a football team can splinter up and, and it can turn a mess can turn into a bigger mess, that's what can happen inside a church when suffering comes upon the church. One of the things Bill Parcells might say uh, to Mike Zimmer is you need to watch these younger guys they could really go off track in the midst of this. Maybe you don't have to worry about the veterans as much. And it's interesting in this text, Peter is writing to the leaders inside a suffering church. And then he addresses young men inside a suffering church and then he addresses them all. And so we get very practical uh, guidance from the Lord to his church uh, in this text. So if you want to turn there with me, first Peter chapter five, beginning in verse one. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Now, in this first verse, the ones who are addressed is the elders. In fact, three-fourths of this sermon is going to be directed at myself, at Scott, and at David. That's who Peter is addressing. But I would encourage you, as the church body, not to sleep through the first Three fourths of the sermon, but to lean into it because elders to you ought to be of great importance. In fact, Peter says, or I mean, Paul says in Ephesians 4 8 uh, that when Christ ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave them gifts. And then those gifts, he says, are the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ. So I didn't say it. God said it. Elders are a gift to the church. Elders exists to watch over your life to feed you to lead you to protect you to guard you and that's who Peter addresses here and he does it at giving great example to the humility that he's going to call for in the church and just a few verses later look at what he says i exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witnesses of the sufferings of Christ as well as the partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. So Peter, being an apostle, shows humility and says, I'm a fellow elder with you local elders of these churches that are scattered abroad, and I'm just, just like you are going to partake in the glory when Christ returns, so will I. We're the same that way. We're different in that Peter actually got to see the sufferings of Christ and got to be on the Mount of Transfiguration, see Christ in his glory. He got to see the, the resurrected Christ. Apostles were witnesses of those things. But here he humbly relates to the elders that he's exhorting. And then here's his charge. And and I guess before we get to the charge, I just want to point one more thing out in verse 1. There's a theme all throughout 1 Peter, and the theme is this. Suffering comes first, then comes glory. Suffering comes first, then comes glory. And in the time between... Now and when Christ returns is a time where we will suffer much. We'll suffer in a fallen world. Death is what awaits all of us. Sickness, struggles. We'll suffer because we're Christians in a world that rejects Christ. Suffering comes first, then glory. If I could remind you back in first Peter uh, one in verse seven, he taught he says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold, though it perishes are are that perishes though it is tested by fire, may abound to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's saying right now you're being tested by fire. Life is not easy now, but that testing, that faith that proves genuine is the guarantee that glory is coming in the future. And then in verse 11 he says, uh, inquiring the, the prophets before were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. So for Jesus' life, suffering was prophesied would come first for Christ, then glory. And then in verse 13 it says, therefore prepare your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in the present, we need to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us. We suffer now. It's real. We don't have to pretend like it's not as Christians, but our hope is set on Christ when he comes. And then in verse 21 of 1 Peter 1. He says, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So he died first, then he was raised in glory. So hope now for glory is coming. And this idea of Christ being revealed in the end, right now we live by faith, not by sight, right? We know the gospel. We know what's going to happen. But you haven't seen Christ in all of his glory. You haven't received all the reward that you're going to have for being a follower of Christ. That's yet still in the future. 1 Peter 1.5 speaks of this. He says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Or in verse 7 of chapter 1, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when Peter says this in first one, in verse 1 of chapter 5, that, there's going to be glory that will be revealed to us, but he's writing to a suffering church. He's just continuing in this same theme. People give up on the Lord and say, I'm done with him in the midst of suffering when they believe that what God promised them was an easy life on earth and that everything's going to go, Good, they say, God's a liar. He doesn't care for me. He doesn't love me. And yet, Christ promised us that we would have trials and tribulations. But he said, take heart, for I've overcome the world. Christ will come. It will be over. And so then he charges the shepherds to shepherd the flock of God that is among you the 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 charge is to shepherd now we don't know maybe any shepherds we've we've maybe never witnessed shepherding going on but peter's readers would have understood all that it took to take care of sheep. And this is the charge for elders. This is what they're supposed to do. If you were going to describe the job of an elder in one word, you would say they are to shepherd. That's what they are to do. To take care of the sheep is what a shepherd does to watch over their lives there's three fundamental things a shepherd does. They lead the sheep. The sheep doesn't lead the shepherd. The shepherd leads the sheep to good places to eat. The shepherd feeds his sheep and the shepherd protects his sheep, guards them, watches over them. And then notice he says, shepherd the flock of God, that is among you, which ought to cause David and myself and Scott to tremble because we're called the shepherd, not my flock, not Scott's flock or David's flock, but the flock of God, (laughs) which means any authority that's been granted to us as elders is a stewardship type of authority they're not my sheep. They're his sheep. John ten eleven. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We must tremble more. How did the shepherd get the sheep? He laid down his life for the sheep. Christ lived a perfect life, that you can't live and I can't live, to die on behalf of the sheep, the sinner, to pay the price, to take on the wrath of God in order that He can save them. They're His sheep and He died for them. Back in chapter 1 of 1 Peter and verse 18, He says, He reminds the believers knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. God didn't gather up a bunch of riches and go pay the devil or someone for the sheep. He bought the sheep with the precious blood of his own son, for God so loved the world, He gave his son. Word a shepherd, God's flock that is among you. Scripture recognizes local bodies with real shepherds and elders that are accountable for real sheep at that place. One of the ways we take account for this at Sovereign Grace is we have church membership so that we know who are the sheep that are here among us that we're accountable to shepherd because we're going to give an account for God's sheep and for those particular sheep. In Acts 20, in verse 28, Paul says to the elders there, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. This is why James said, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Is there a higher stewardship on earth than to care for the church? Those whom Christ bought with his own blood. Not many should say, I want to sign up for that and take that role lightly. For it's the church of God, it's God's flock. You remember what Jesus said to Peter as we think of what it means to shepherd the flock of God after Christ had risen from the dead and he had breakfast with Peter in John twenty-one fifteen, when they had finished breakfast Jesus said to Simon Peter Simon son of John do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. John MacArthur writes, no matter what New Testament terminology identifies the shepherd and his task, underneath all is the primacy of biblical truth. He is to feed the sheep. The sheep live off the Word of God. And the number one job of every shepherd is to make sure the sheep are healthy. And no one can be healthy without being fed God's Word. So the fundamental job of the elder is not to tell you my ideas, what I think, what clever ideas I come up with because you're not my sheep. Jesus wants his sheep fed. And when Christ ascended into heaven, he didn't leave his church desolate. But what he said is he said, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's going to remind you of everything I taught you. And the Holy Spirit is also going to appoint elders and give elders to the church so that when the church reads 1st Peter 3 I mean 1st Timothy 3 and reads Titus 1 and the church looks at what a qualified elder is and they say who are these who is God given us the Holy Spirit shows us but Christ did not leave his sheep without someone to feed them His words. And we must pray. You must pray for us that we do that faithfully. If you love me, you'll pray for me that I do that faithfully because I don't get to stand with you before God, the chief shepherd. I'll stand before Him myself with greater judgment in strictness, because I teach the Word of God. That's what James 3 says. But let's pray for pastors all over this world who are starving their sheep in the midst of difficult times. And so the shepherd is called to shepherd the flock of God that is among them in Ezekiel 34 4 the prophet is charging the shepherds over Israel the leaders of Israel with being terrible shepherds here's what he says the weak you have not strengthened the sick you have not healed the injured you have not bound up you you are the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought out, and with force and harshness you've ruled them. That's what the leaders of Israel were like when Ezekiel was addressing them. And so then Peter gets really practical. He tells them how to shepherd, what kind of attitude to do it with, how how to do it and how not to do it. He's to shepherd, exercising oversight. Literally, it means to have scope over or to look upon. So the fundamental job of the shepherd is to look upon the sheep, to watch them, to have scope upon the sheep. Why? Because I got to feed them. Are they hungry? I got to guard them. Is there an enemy there? Is there false teachers coming from within Is there some who are sick? Is there some who are discouraged that needs encouragement? And if I'm to lead, I need to have look over the flock and see the pasture land if I'm going to know where I am to lead them. So if the fundamental call of the elder is to shepherd, the shepherding has to be with looking upon them every other aspect of shepherding must be done with this oversight. That's why sometimes the elders are called overseers. And then how are they to do it? And this is helpful because he says, not this way, this way, not this way, this way, not this way, this way, three times, really practical. First, if you look at point A in your notes, They're to do it not lazily, but willingly. In the way the ESV says it is not under compulsion, but willingly. MacArthur writes, the first danger Peter mentions in shepherding is to shepherd under compulsion rather than as eager, willing servants, servant leaders who minister voluntarily. The obvious point is that shepherds must be diligent rather than lazy, heart motivated rather than forced to be faithful and passionate about his privilege and duty rather than than indifferent. When the heart is fully Christ and driven by love for him and for souls, there is much internal compulsion that precludes any need for external motivational pressure. So when he says not under compulsion... He's saying no elder should have to be motivated from the outside to care for the church of God. He's going he, he, to hold in front of them the reward that they get for shepherding well in a moment. That ought to compel them. But no one should have to come to an elder and say, be more passionate about the sheep. Be more passionate about your job. It shouldn't, it, there shouldn't have to be any sort of uh, pushing that way. When the Holy Spirit calls a man, he ought to recognize and have such a high view of what the calling is and what's expected of him and, and the stewardship that's involved and enough fear that he ought not be lazy. And so there's a willingness. And in, in fact, in First Peter three one, if you're going to say the first qualification for elder, he says, "If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task." There might be someone qualified morally for the position, but if they if they don't have the desire if they're not don't have this idea of willing to lay their life down for the flock then they're not qualifying those aren't the types of shepherds christ leaves his church and so when we when sovereign grace began and we're looking at you know is there going to be term limits on elders that started to seem silly to us when we looked at what an elder's called to. It's not like a job, yeah, I'll give you three years. I'll lay down my life for three years, but then I'll be done. Really? the The compulsion and the passion to do it is just going to end in three years? And so the way eldership is at sovereign grace is it's indefinitely unless someone dies or for some reason they're incapable of being able to fulfill the duties or unless they would be disqualified. And so there's this willingness. Listen to how Paul says this. Paul declares, if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe to me if I do not preach the gospel... 1 Corinthians 9.16, he defined the proper compulsion to ministry when he wrote, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. The love of Christ controls us, 2 Corinthians 5.11. So compulsion itself isn't bad. It's what's, Driving you for Paul, it's the love of Christ controls me. I can't do anything, but I look at the fear of the Lord and what he's called me to Paul's own ministry call was go tell Paul how much he must suffer for my namesake. That's what drove him and motivated him. And then in Romans 1 14, listen to this. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager. So he's under obligation, but then he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Much motivation ought to be from the Scripture to the elders and as you consider God's love for the lost, for his church. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So it's interesting, when he calls the church to lean into the leadership, he says, remember that they stepped into the position knowing that they're going to give an account for their leading. And so he says, not lazily, but willingly, And then he says, not greedily, but eagerly. He says to shepherd as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. If anyone becomes a pastor for the money, they're crazy. And I don't say that because some churches pay their pastors millions of dollars. Some churches pay their pastors really well. Our church is one of them. But for me to take this position for the money or for some personal advantage for myself would be failing to fear God and to see what God has actually called one to. Back in Acts 20 when, he's talking, when Paul's talking to the elders there, Paul said, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. And all these things I have shown you that by working hard in all these ways, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. So an elder ought to have an attitude of giving rather than getting. That's what's called of God's leaders. 1 Thessalonians 2.8, Paul says it this way. So being, affectionately desir- so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you've become very dear to us. You see Paul's heart? He's, he says, I'm willing to suffer for, for preaching the gospel to you, but not only that, I'm willing to give you my life. We desire You. We love You. This is the heart that Peter wants the elders to have for the church of God, for the flock of God. Giving rather than getting. There's so many examples here, but we're starting to run out of time. 2 Corinthians twelve fifteen, Paul says, i almost gladly spend and be spent for your souls it's just clear in the qualifications for an elder in 1 peter 3:3 3, 3, it says an elder but must not be a drunkard not violent but gentle not quarrelsome not a lover of money so greed Cannot be a part of uh, the life of an elder. It, it's, uh, there's no one more dangerous than someone with authority that looks to take advantage of those under the authority for their own selfish gain. And we have far too many examples of this just in the world and, and in society. Um, and then the third thing he says not to be is not domineering but being examples. Look at what he says in verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge but being examples of the flock. Now let's be honest. Back to the Vikings illustration. Mike Zimmer, the coach who's hired by the general manager, has the general manager hanging around. And the owner's are in the facility and they're 0-3 and Zimmer's starting to feel pressure. And the temptation would be to turn to the players and now treat them in a way that harms them rather than is for their good. You just kind of pass it down the line. And this suffering church, it's a real temptation because the flock of God probably isn't acting in the most godly, humble ways when the pressure's on. That's when we act the worst, when the pressure's on. And so it's not for no reason that he calls elders to not be domineering over those in their charge. In a time of suffering, the leaders have to show the flock how to navigate the suffering by being an example not by being harsh or, or domineering or abusing their authority for self-centered interests. That's the idea. Jesus was very clear on this. In Mark 10.42, Jesus called the disciples to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over Rome. If there's one thing Rome did well, Is it held authority? Anyone who had authority, had a spear, was ready to put you to death if you don't submit to it. Jesus says, you know how Rome does it, how those who have authority lord it over those, those who with authority somehow get rich. How do you think that is? By using their authority for selfish means. And Jesus says, this is how they do it. But then in verse 43 says, it shall, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So if the chief shepherd is Christ and he led by giving and by being an example, he didn't use his authority to destroy people, rather he used his authority to save. And that's what we're called to as elders. So many examples in the New Testament of this. So much, I mean, Peter just flat out says, follow the pattern of this sound words that you've heard in me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He's like, pattern your life after my life. He was living in such a way. Was he a sinner? He said, yeah, I'm the chief among sinners. But as a non-perfect follower of Christ, he's saying my aim should be your aim. The goal of my life should be the goal of your life. Imitate me. Confess your sins. Trust in Christ. And then, as Peter always does, Here's the thing, when Peter was on the Mount of Transfiguration and he saw Moses in all of his glory and, and he saw Elijah and he saw Jesus, you, you remember the silly thing Peter did? He, he said, they start walking away, he says, let me make tents for all of them so that they stay. He had never experienced glory like that before. He just wanted to stay in it. And what did God say? God basically said, shut up, Peter, listen to my son. And Jesus was going to a cross to die. Peter wanted glory before suffering. But Peter saw it. And so when he, in every one of his letters, he motivates Christians by the reward that's coming when Christ comes. He's always motivating because he's tasted it a little bit and he wants them to know how great it's going to be and so he motivates them to faithfulness in light of that. And when the chief shepherd appears, he'll receive the unfading crown of glory. What what an incredible motivation. What more motivation do we need? Scott david that the chief shepherd comes and and we receive reward for however we were faithful in our service and then he addresses young men and and different commentators believe different things on on who these are i i I, after reading all the arguments, I think he specifically has in mind young men in the church. And the reason why is because it, it's not hard for us to understand who's the most headstrong, confident, non-humble, most likely to, uh, push against authority. It's young men. And, and so literally in the text, he says, young men, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And that's a military term. Uh, be subject to the elders. Hupitasso, literally it means to line up under. And, and evidently in these churches, Peter specifically saw a need to give a charge right to the young men and tell them to follow in examples under the leadership of uh, the elders. And then he goes, he he quickly makes it church wide. And then he says, clothe yourselves, all of you. So that's everybody. He's talking to everyone. With humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. As Peter's looking at this struggling church, uh, I, I love how, uh Tom Schreiner says this listen listen to this illustration he says smooth relations in the church can be preserved if the entire congregation adorns herself with humility when believers recognize they are creatures and sinners they are less apt to be offended by others humility and this is the key is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. Pride gets upset when another does not follow your own suggestions. Peter grounded this admonition in a citation from Proverbs 3.34 and is also quoted in James 4.6. Believers should heed the injunction to be humble because God sets His face against the proud but he lavishes grace upon the humble. So when Peter looks at the suffering church, he says, to all of you, here's what you need. You need humility. Because when you have humility, the church is like a well-oiled machine. It doesn't run roughly. Because when the pressure of suffering is on, tensions can run high. So the charge is, clothe yourselves With humility. That word means let this be the very nature of what you're like. What's that person like? Humble. That's what Peter wants said of the church. Because then, when there's different opinions in the church, but humility, when there's difference in opinions in the church, but recognition that I'm a sinner too, and I'm a creature then even with differences within the body, the body can continue to build itself up in the gospel. And so we have a very practical text before us, especially in light of coming to the last half of 2020. A lot of suffering in 2020. Difficult year. And yet Christ loved you and loved me so much that he was thinking about his church then and he's thinking about his church now. And he was feeding his church then and he feeds his church now. And he gives us clear direction, which is so encouraging that we have the word of God that Christ can shepherd us through these times. Father, We thank you for the instruction we get from your word. Father, we pray for humility. It's so unnatural to my heart, to the human heart. Father, it takes spiritual maturity, spiritual warfare to humble ourselves. And so God, I ask that You would grant us greater humility amongst one another. Father, I pray that you would help us see the imagery that when we're proud, you oppose us. Meaning as a father, you'll discipline us. So Lord, let us rather lean into your grace by being humble for you exalt those who are low and who are humbled and you discipline and tear down the proud. And so, Lord, uh, we ask that it might be so among us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.